You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. This is Alan. Joining us, our writer again. Thanks for joining me today. I'm excited we get to have the final series or the final part in our our series on people from different parts of the political spectrum. It's the grand finale. It is. Now, I think everyone, you're going to be hearing this on a day, hopefully Friday, that is different from when we normally release them. And here's essentially what happened in a nutshell, which is we had a really difficult time tracking down people to join us for these interviews. And so we kind of had a decision to make in terms of our recording schedule. And we really wanted to stick to our commitment to record and publish our episodes on topics around sort of spooky Halloween themed issues and have those come out through the weeks, the four weeks that we have this year in October. And we only had so many weeks in September. And because it took us so long to be able to find people to record with, because we tried for a couple months, I think. Oh, yeah. And to find people. And so uh, we we made the decision that if we could get all four, we would just release one of them basically as a bonus episode. And so I hope that that's cool with everybody. Uh, you get to hear something extra. Well, you know, the election itself is pretty spooky. So, you know, consider it a uh, spooky fall section. <laughs> that's true. And it is going to be October when this comes out. So mm-hmm. it's sort of a prelude to to <laughs> to the, the election, to the the spooky topics. It all rolls together. Absolutely. That being said, I'm really excited for everybody to hear the upcoming interview we did with a person who is affiliated with the Green Party. As I said, this is our final episode in our series with people from different political parties. And this was really fascinating. I think this one went places I had absolutely no idea that it was going to go. It left me with questions that could have lasted three or four more episodes. You know, it's one of those things that's the first time, it's a voice from the lower frequency that we're not used to hearing and one that deserves to be heard just as much as any. And I look forward to hearing more about uh, their views as well as everyone's. Well said. Yeah. I think it was one coming into it where I was like, I just don't know like enough to feel like I can ask questions to continue to facilitate the conversation for very long. But I mean, at an hour in, it felt like, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of what right. we need to talk about here. <laughs> I do want to alert everybody that our guest was recovering from feeling under the weather. So we tried to cut out as much of the coughing as possible, but it's also, you might hear a little bit of a subdued tone and there might be some residual background coughing sounds, but we'll, we'll, we'll cut those as much as we possibly can. So I don't think there's anything else. Do you have anything before we launch into this interview? I'm excited for everybody to hear it. Perfect. Thank you everyone so much for joining us. Let's go ahead and jump now to our interview. I just want to start by saying we're lucky to be joined here today by our guest. What name would you prefer to go by? I'll just go by Dylan. Dylan. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. You have the fortunate position, I think, of being the, the last voice people get to hear on the topics we're talking. We've, we've recruited people to come on the show and speak to why they have aligned themselves with the particular political party. And we invited you here, asked you to participate with us because you are a member of the Green Party, correct? Correct. Awesome. And so again, I really appreciate your time and thank you for being here. And I'm looking forward to hearing this. And I think that one of the first things to start with, which we also had to do with the libertarians, is to ask, what is the Green Party? And I, I think there are probably some people out here who either are very peripherally familiar with it or maybe even not at all. So could you just talk about what it is? That's actually a harder question than it sounds like. The Green Party, it has four core values, peace, ecology, social justice, and then the last one is decentralization. Interesting. Can you actually say a little bit more about what what you mean by decentralization? Yeah. So unlike the DNC and RNC, where they have like a strong central party that kind of keeps all the other, their other parties in check. The Green Party actually has some problems with this sometimes that we're seeing in Georgia and Alaska, which I'll get into for a second. Our party, our national party is kind of weak and things are run at the state and local level. And we only really use the national party to endorse those candidates and also run presidential candidates. So it's hard whenever people say that Green Party is not doing anything because it may or may not be. Because whenever you have a Green Party in Philadelphia and a Green Party in 
Los Angeles instead of like a big green party altogether, you don't really know what's going on all the time. And we're starting to link up a little bit more with each other, but there's still some outliers. Like, for example, in Alaska, Howie Hawkins isn't on the ballot because they put a different candidate on there because they like that one party liked that candidate more than Howie Hawkins, who is our candidate who won the primary. And sometimes we have communication problems with the other state parties. But then again, we have, I'm part of the Green Party of Pennsylvania. We have a pretty good relationship with the Green Party of Ohio. We send volunteers over there to help with them sometimes, and they help us out sometimes. So it just depends on your state party. It's a little bit out of control sometimes, but we're working on it. Gotcha. Now, it's interesting because you said that decentralization is, is one of the values of the Green Party. Yeah, it's actually one of our critical values. And so it's hard because that's one of our problems is disorganization and decentralization. Okay. But we can't really fight against that. It's like going against one of your own laws. So we can't just centralize the party because that goes against what we stand for. So it's kind of like democracy. It's tough and it's hard sometimes, but we work with it because it's important to us. Where is the threshold that you see you know, in, in any other party of where being centralized seems to be you know, ineffective? toward achieving their goals or how it would relate to yours? One of the big problems I think some of the other parties have with the centralization is just the fact that like you have the big party in charge of making decisions for all the small parties, but the small parties all have their individual needs. So for example, like if you have a democratic party in rural Pennsylvania, they might not get all their needs met and the resources that they need from the national party. And they won't like understand their issues quite as well. But whenever you have the Green Party of rural Pennsylvania in charge of the Green Party for rural Pennsylvania, then you don't really have that issue because you know what's going on. Everyone involves, they know where you're at. They know the situation around you and how to handle it. If you try and run your decentralized party like a centralized party, you're going to have a problem. You have to play to your strengths of being able to be localized and being grassroots because like the big centralized national parties, they get their national corporation donations. Almost all of our donations, all the donations I can think of, are straight from people. Like I know for, there's a local candidate running in my district for my state house and the national candidate. I've personally made donations to them and that's how we get it. So sometimes like we don't have millions of dollars to blow in an election, but everything we do have, it's good money from good people. Wow. I actually, I had no idea about the decentralized nature of it. I'm kind of curious, how does it work to, I guess, collectively nominate a person who ends up on a ticket then or a ballot? There's actually a little bit of controversy around that because there were two front runners in our campaign. Well, it depends who you ask. There's three. There's Howie Hawkins, Dario Hunter, and there was someone who wasn't really running, but people said they were trying to draft him. Jesse Ventura, who's the former wrestler, actor, and governor of Minnesota, I believe. Wow. But in some states, they had primaries where everyone could vote. Some states, they had closed primaries. Some states, like we don't really know what went on behind there. But like at the end of it, Howie was nominated, but there's a faction of the Green Party. They call themselves the Independent Greens that wanted Dario Hunter or Jesse Ventura to be nominated. So they think that there's a lot of foul play behind there. But the thing is, we can't really crack on on that because that's the decentralization. And whenever you have everything run by volunteers instead of like employees, it's kind of hard to crack down on that anyways. Yeah. That actually leads us to another really interesting part. In the Montana, there was a big stink in the news that came up. There were Republicans that were basically paying to get on the Green Party on the ballot and then running their own candidates as the Greens. The Green Party of Minnesota didn't know that. They just got a notice one day that they're on the ballot now. And they're like, well, that's great, but we don't know how this happened. And they looked into it. Turns out it was the Repub Republicans doing it. Run like They were trying to do that just to run extra Republicans, basically. It was a very strange situation. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that was possible or legal. <laughs> so in Montana, they actually went to the state and had their ballot access taken away because they were like, we don't want these Republicans affiliated with us because they they're not part of us. So it's kind of like you can have people infiltrate your volunteer organization and like overthrow it. Like in the business world, you can get 51% of the stock like a hostile takeover of a company. Right. Then once you have that stock, you can do whatever you want because you're the majority. Got it. Does every state have a, a green party? Kind of. Every state at one point kind of had a green party, but 
the issue with like volunteer organizations is if you can't get a lot of volunteers, you have one or two people just doing everything by themselves and they get burnt out and then it becomes a defunct party. Yeah. Gotcha. Cause I was thinking specifically in Montana that I can't imagine there being a lot of people in Montana that would be in the green party, but uh, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I've never been there. It just seemed like it was a pretty unilaterally red state. Well, that's how it is in a lot of places. Like there's a pretty big green party in California to my knowledge. Sure. Which I didn't really expect that because it's, known historically as being like a very democratic state yeah i didn't expect there to be much opposition i didn't really know this until recently but one of the strongest green parties like state level is the green party of pennsylvania which is the state i live in which is really nice because i've had a pretty good experience with everyone in it good and everything runs pretty smoothly but like if i were say in one of the like the green party of georgia they had some internal conflict there i don't know how like i would feel about that because like it's a difference between every you join a party and everything's good and like people are nice to you and everything runs smoothly versus whenever there's like a parties of war going on. Yeah. I'm kind of curious. It just occurred to me to ask, and I wish I'd asked this in one of our other, other interviews, but I think that a lot of people have been either skeptical or critical of voting for or participating with any political party. That's not one of the two main parties. And so I'd love to give you a chance now to speak to why you would support the Green Party instead of a different party that you maybe have would have more of a chance of having the person you vote for elected to office. It's one of those deals where it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't vote for the Green Party because you don't think they're going to win, they're not going to win. So you just kind of got to vote for what you believe in and hope it works out best. Because the thing is, like, the reason why we're in this situation is because we've been voting for Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican, which one's evil, which one's not. We've been voting that way for the last hundred or so years. That's just getting somewhere where we don't want to be. This is one of the most contentious elections we've ever had. You have people around here like trying to get people arrested for their signs or like get people fined for their signs, people tearing up each other's signs. It's crazy. Yeah. And we can't really change that throughout those, like with just those two parties. We need an outside influence. Like if you look at a lot of European parliamentarian democracies, they'll have like five, eight, ten, a dozen parties in their parliament. We have two. Right. In our House, Senate, like our Congress. So it's a tough thing. You can't get them to take away their own power. You have to fight them. And the only way we can fight them is with us. Individually, we're pretty small. And that's like, I guess, kind of a metaphor for people. Like the Green Party is smaller than the Libertarian Party. But we're a people-based party. We try and fight for popular policies and things that people care about, even if people don't listen to us. Like fighting even if everyone hates us, but we believe it's right. And because hopefully someday someone will see that and they'll join us too. Like when you go out every day, like hopefully you do what you think's right. Like you hold the door for strangers. You help an old lady with her groceries to the car. Well, maybe not during coronavirus, but ordinarily that's something I do. Like I give, I garden, I give vegetables to my friends and my neighbors but i believe like you gotta fight that fight even when no one's watching because that shows your true character so that's kind of like that but on the organizational level there was like no one ever heard of the green new deal really till representative cortez brought it up but we were fighting for the green new deal since 2010 whenever howie hawkins he had that on his gubernatorial platform so it's a thankless battle but it's still a battle we fight but some people, they really do get burnt out on it. I was going to say, that's why I do believe in the Green Party, because no one can fight for this but me. I can't trust anyone to fight my battle for me, because that hasn't really worked out so far. And eventually, you just get tired of watching yourself get ignored, especially in these Rust Belt states in the Midwest, where the farms are getting shut down, the businesses are getting shut down. Who's going to fight for that but us? Because it's more profitable for the people, like the politicians and their business contacts to send jobs elsewhere because they get more kickbacks but that hurts us because we lose our jobs we lose our family farms or like fracking fracking is a big thing and we're around where i live there's people's property there's a lady whose property was taken from her through eminent domain for fracking which should be illegal wow it's government power for private gain but who can fight for that but us because they're just making themselves wealthier and powerful, more powerful. Got it. Do you see that unreliability that you mentioned of 
or something that's specific to an, you know centralized government and kind of along the lines of that theme of decentralization that you mentioned earlier? Like, I'm not going to say we shouldn't have a central government, but I think we need to put a little bit more power in not just the state, but the municipal level. Right. And that, that, that was my next question um, was, you know, did you see a place at all for a centralized government or more of a push toward, I guess, a uh, more federalist system, which is, I guess, the ideal and how our, our current system is ideally structured and putting it more on local decision making? I think it's important to move to a more localized decision base, but like it's, it's hard because we should have cooperation throughout state and county and townships, but you can't force that cooperation. You can't force a bunch of fish in a bucket to find their way out. What would your idea of the dream level of cooperation between the green parties across states be? And like, what purpose could it feasibly serve? Hopefully we can, we talk about it a lot. We talk about this thing we call the green wave. I'm sure you've heard of the blue wave or the red wave. Yeah. The green wave. That's basically, we're trying to get Senate and, house seats but it's hard to do because one of the things we hear a lot is well why aren't you running senate and house seats why are you always running a presidential candidate and the the deal is we do run senate and house seats like we have lisa savage running in maine right now she's doing pretty well and that's one of the first states that has ranked choice voting right but the thing is we need a presidential run in order to maintain ballot access in these states and when that's the hard thing that people will never like to talk about because even during these presidential races, we get our ballot access taken away. So we can't run House and Senate candidates if we don't have the ballot access to run them because you can't really win a Senate seat on a right campaign. Yeah. I kind of wanted to switch gears a little bit because I, I wanted to ask a little bit about you personally. And I'm, I'm curious, like how long have you been a member of this party and sort of what, what was your inspiration to join? I've been a member for only a couple months because this is my first election cycle. I just recently turned 18. Oh, gotcha. But I've been following the Green Party since 2016. I did a lot of research on Jill Stein. I thought she was a fine candidate, especially compared to the other two. So I followed them, but like I didn't really know because it's hard to connect because you have to know someone sometimes. But the Howie Hawkins campaign... It opened a lot of doors. Like a lot more people are getting involved because instead of try- having to try and find your state party, the state party finds you. Like you say what state you're from and one of their Facebook threads and the state director or the local director, if you like say around where you are, they'll come and connect with you and be like, oh, hey, are you interested? We can hook you up. So I believe he's the chair for the Green Party of Allegheny County, um, Jay Walker, who's also running for our state house. He got me linked in with the state green party, the green party of Allegheny County and a program. We have like a, I don't know if it's quite called a program, a organization. That's the word I was looking for called yes, which is young eco-socialist caucus. Okay. Which is a group for 35 and younger eco-socialists to not only like talk about ideas, but bond. And that's one of the things that whenever you're talking about how can we get the green parties to work together across states, I think the yes model is something to really look at because it's really great how I can talk to people from Ohio and Florida and California and sometimes even in Korea and connect with people and work towards a common goal because I would have never met these people beforehand and we have a lot different, but we have so much in common when it comes to what we believe in. Sure. So I think one of the things we have to do is bond with our other like state green parties and do like what we do, send volunteers the like Columbus for protests or maybe like have Georgia help out with Florida if there's a hurricane, like not only just do political stuff, but do direct action and mutual aid and like work together and like do community work. So it's not just a green party. It's a green organization, like a green network. I see. Because the thing is a lot of stuff we believe in can be accomplished through that. Like it's not just going to be protesting and picketing. We can go out there. We can, have our initiatives, our programs to help people. And that I think that's a good thing we could do. But the thing is, like with our funding, we're limited whenever we have like a $20 donation every couple months. Sure. That does sound like it would be hard to do, I guess, any large scale organized event if you're relying entirely on volunteers and very small donations. And yeah, that's exactly our problem. But that's the problem whenever you have a grassroots, people oriented campaign, you have to have people and you have to have grassroots. Yeah. What exactly was it about the Green Party that really caught your attention and attracted you to that cause? 
I think a lot of it's integrity because like, since the 70s or so, there's been a steep decline in faith in the government because of the two-party system because you can't really trust anyone because nobody has your best interests, it feels like, in the government. So it's a lot different like seeing someone's ad on TV slander the other guy on TV whenever you just saw the ad of the other guy slandering the first guy on TV versus like the candidate running in my district for state house, Michael Bagdas Canning. I actually got to meet him. I work with his campaign and like it's different. You meet someone, you talk to them, you shake their hand, you have lunch with them. It's not like they're your representative. It's like they're your friend. Cool. Sounds very communal. It's one of the very cool things about the Green Party. I found out working in it, like the position of who someone is, it's not so much important as it is like, say you are in the Democratic Party, you're probably not going to ever talk to Joe Biden. You're probably not ever going to like meet him, shake his hand if you're just like a volunteer. But I've like been on Howie Hawkins town hall live streams. I've asked him questions. I talked to them the one time through Zoom, I believe. And it was really cool because like this guy's running for president and I get to talk to him. He answers my questions. He treats me with respect. And that's like one of the things like everyone treats everyone with respect. And it, like it doesn't matter who someone is in the party, what their position is. They're humble. They're just a person like you. They're not like a millionaire. They're not better than you. And that means a lot. Do you think that that approachability is proportional to the current size of the party? And, you know, if it was to grow to such a level as the dominant parties now, would that still exist? Or does the restraint of the core value of, say, decentralization kind of prohibit that from really ever happening in theory? One of the things about the Green Party is like both kind of a big party and a small party because there's a lot of people in it, but it's small because you kind of know a lot of people in it. You might not know everyone personally, but you can talk to everyone and that's kind of goes along with that decentralization, like maintaining that approachability because it's like, they're not your literal neighbors, but in terms of the party, they're someone you work with. They're like your coworker in a way. So instead of being like a corporate structure, it's kind of like everyone's part of your shop. Everyone's part of your store that you know and you work with. So there's people I've only talked to a couple of times, but they're still polite to me. They're still treatment with respect. They're still approachable. So I do think that will stay in place, like assuming we don't betray our values, which is something that is also hard to do. It's one of the cool strengths about decentralization is you can't really do a power grab like you can do in some of the other parties. Like one of the things we've seen the past four years is how the Republican Party polarized completely around Donald Trump. Like previously, it was kind of they had their little sex, they had the Tea Party, they had the other offshoots where it was kind of like they were divided, kind of like how the Democratic Party are now with Justice Democrats and all that. But now it's kind of like when Trump became president, everyone formed around him. That doesn't really happen in a decentralized party because there's not all that power to wield. It's almost like creating the opportunity for dissent. Yeah, it's kind of like problems with decentralization can also be its strengths. So there's no like dictatorship or authoritarianism. So it's hard to do get everything organized but it's also hard to take control and just throw everything away because while it's hard to like manage sometimes it's hard to destroy too because there will always be cells of the green party around even after like the disastrous years after 2000 when after bush was elected with ralph nader and the whole debacle in florida mm -hmm. the green party still persisted even though they were almost completely demolished and weakened they came back with Joe Stein and now Howie Hawkins. Like, you don't really see that with other parties. There's been other parties that have gotten that close, but if they had something like that happen where they were the target of mass public hatred for that, they would have disappeared, and they have in the past. Like, for example, the Socialist Party has been, or like the Communist Party, they've kind of fizzled away. They still exist, unlike other parties. Like, I think there was the... I can't think of any off the top of my head. But I know that there were some past single-issue parties that were basically dissolved and then either disappeared or became part of the Republicans or Democrats. Got it. What are some of the specific sort of policy issues that are most important to you? So just to give you some example of things that are often talked about in major elections are things like jobs, immigration, gun rights, abortion, 
marriage. Like these are topics that that usually appear on the on the ballot, and you don't have to necessarily speak to those. Just what are the issues that are most important to you, and sort of why you chose the Green Party? The most important ones, also like the the big one for the party, which is the Green New Deal. Which I don't know if you've heard about the Cortez one, which gets laughed at a lot because like there's people make straw mans about like huge trains and like fucking up cow farts or something. I don't know. It sounds ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but the Green Party Green New Deals, nothing short of amazing. I don't know if you've ever read it online, but I'd recommend after it checking it out. It's huge. It's reminiscent of the actual New Deal, where it's a major inf- like nationwide infrastructure program, which tackles a ton of issues that we face, such as climate change, shortage of like jobs, shortage of investment in communities. And it encompasses things also like Medicare for all, subsidized education, housing, medicine, all kinds of other things. And additionally, like a lot of the other issues don't matter if we don't take care of climate change because there's not going to be any issues to worry about. (laughs) But it's nice how we can take care of climate change while also having sustainable jobs. That's one of the big things I like a lot about that is like a lot of people say that the renewable jobs will take away coal jobs but the thing is whenever the coal leaves like there's no more coal in the sea and your coal job's gone whenever the sun's gone that's whenever the solar job goes away and if the sun's gone we've got bigger problems <laughs> yes <laughs> so those jobs you, there will always need to be repairs and upgrades and maintenance on solar panels and wind turbines and geothermal tubes and hydroelectric dams like with the mass employment we're going to have after this coronavirus is over or like the recession we're going to have something like this where there's going to be higher minimum wages like the fight for 15 is now the fight for 20 and they're going to match that 20 or more because the thing is like trickle down economics don't work money trickles up if you pay people a lot they have more money to spend on luxuries and commodities and they'll spend more money which will improve the economy because if you pay a worker $20 and they spend $5 on like a, I don't know, a sandwich somewhere, or they spend a hundred dollars on more new clothes, then that money gets taken by other workers and spent. So whenever you have more people buying commodities, it puts more money into your economy and increases your GDP. So it could boost our economy instead of just being tax cuts for the same corporations. And that's one of the things we did see in the fifties with the people getting the money back from the war bonds and having money to spend again is with all the commodities that people were buying and the new appliances and things like cars, people had extra money to spend, which created an air of prosperity that we haven't seen since. But also, one of the things people don't like to talk about then is we had very high income tax rates to fund these public works like the highway system or like this, the solar panel systems and the geothermal systems. But with that taxes, like if you invest that taxes into where they need to go to help everybody, because I don't know about you, but I can't straight up buy a solar panel. Sure. But if we all pitch in five bucks in taxes or whatever, we could all get solar panels. Gotcha. I kind of wanted to turn to coming back to something you had said earlier. Is it, it sounded like you were describing a system of government with the decentralization that looked a lot more like you were advocating for relatively small government. I mean, it, you know, I think the the Republican or the well the Republicans and the Libertarians especially really talk about this idea of of the government at the federal level having very little power, and instead, I think the Libertarians tend to advocate for a lot of that being in private industry. But I guess what I want to say is, it sounds like your position is advocating for relatively small government. Is that accurate? In a way, because the issue isn't necessarily big government, but it's how we use it. Because we could have a big government that benefits us, but I'd like to frame my government as we're not necessarily going to cut down the size of the government, but how we use it. It's not going to be like a overbearing ruler. It's going to be a forum that all the states and all the communities meet together in to plan everything out. Like we could still have the government the same size, but use it differently. Instead of having like bipartisan bickering, we can talk about what each area needs and come up with a collective plan. Because instead of people fighting for their own interests, We'll be fighting for everyone's interests to help each other. So instead of competing, we can focus on weaving a system of mutual dependence. Got it. So treating the 
central government as more of a body to do work on rather than the body that does work. Okay. That's a, an interesting distinction. I haven't heard it put quite like that. I like the way that you set that up and phrased it. Because like, we don't want a unitary government. We want a federal government. So we are going to be a federation. Instead of being a bunch of states ruled like with their leashes held by a master, we're going to be a bunch of states in the, I guess I'll call it the federal forum where we talk about our ideas. I see. And no longer make it about like parties, but make it about states and what the states need versus what the party needs. So in that system, would there be like a, a president like figure? Like what would the, I'm kind of wondering the branches of government would look like. The branches of government would probably be more like the pull of government. Because if you think about the executive and judicial branches, they're kind of strange. Like the judicial branch in particular is particularly undemocratic and kind of antiquated. Because if you think about it, nominating a 40 to 50 to 60 year old person to rule on for the next like 20 or 30 years is kind of an odd way to do things in a democracy, especially because they have so much power. And the president being able to appoint one of these judges, that's a huge thing, especially when there's so few of them. So it's strange whenever we talk about packing the court instead of getting rid of the court, because the idea of the court is interesting, but without term limits, it's very odd. And like, we don't really need the checks and balances if we totally reimagine how our government system works, because I think what we need is just a big legislative branch, like what other nations have, more like a parliament than a whatever we have. I don't think there's really a word for it. We're kind of unique in that regard, where we have our three branches of government with checks and balances. Because instead of like the branches needing checks and balances, it's because the government's not going to be its thing anymore. It's just going to be a platform that we work from. So the states will represent themselves there, and the states will have to do checks and balances on themselves, because the thing is you need checks and balances whenever you're trying to like rig something in your favor. And you don't really want to rig something in your favor whenever it's going to hurt you in the long run by hurting your partner that you need in order to help you. And that's like the whole mutual dependence thing I was talking about. Yeah. So we need to like make it so basically you're incentivized to help each other more than you are to compete against each other. This is so interesting because I I haven't heard anything quite like this. And right now a lot of the discussion that I've been hearing on the news and politics from pundits is the idea of actually expanding the courts is a suggestion that's been made for how to deal with the fact that you get these, the, the courts being stacked with people of a very specific political orientation. And one of the topics of conversation I, I thought we might discuss was sort of your opinion on the fact that the political, the main political parties have been putting on either liberal judges or conservative judges and you're suggesting sort of the opposite of this, which is just, let's not use that system anymore. Is, is that correct? Am I understanding that? Yeah, that's correct. Because that's the thing. Like, whenever you have a small court, it's extremely easy thing to stack and rig in your favor. So that way, even after you leave office, your policies are going to be reflected for decades to go on. And whenever you pack the court and increase the size, you water down the value to the point where it's kind of worthless at that point. So instead of like trying to fix a system we have, we have to reimagine it. Like we're still working off of documents and that were revolutionary in the 1700s, but we've come quite a long way since then. We no longer ride horse and buggy and use muzzleloader weapons to fight our wars. We don't ship things back and forth over a period of months on wooden ships. And we don't even have to imagine what it would be like to fly because we can just hop on a plane. So we have to reimagine. United States for the 21st century and the 22nd century and look forward instead of looking back. This is a really fascinating conversation. Can you elaborate a little bit more like what that reimagining might look like for something like the courts? I mentioned before, like just, I don't think we need the courts anymore. I think we need to look to a more like parliament style democracy where we just have one house because it's like, we don't need the, the checks and balances are kind of weird, especially because you can pack the checks and balances in your favor. So you're no longer being checked and now you have three times as much power. And like we see that right now, Trump has the executive branch, the Senate, and the judicial branch. It's kind of hard to have checks and balances whenever someone controls all of it. So instead, you just have your representatives, because it's kind of like you're thinking of what I'm proposing in the context of what we have now, which is confusing, because it's like, how would that work? Because it's hard to imagine how it would work, because I don't know entirely how it would work. It's like trying to explain how a 
steam engine would work to someone that just developed the wheel. <laughs> gotcha. So it's like we kind kind of model off of the European and like the New Zealand and the Australian model, but we don't know how the, like we have to implement it with American characteristics so that it'll work for our country because we're different from them and we have our own needs. But I would really like to eventually see this idea of the government, like the federal government, no longer being the body of government, but being the body from which government works from, and it no longer being the federal government on the states, but like the federal government working like with the states. And because I think having like a president where you have a national figure to like kind of rule in a way over everyone is detrimental. I think we should focus more on the representation of the states within the federal government and that's what the parliamentary system would try and be so instead of you just have the states advocating for themselves because it would be like a planning zone kind of like a discussion area where you would write your laws i think one of the purposes to having someone sort of be the the figurehead of any political system is that eventually most of the time it feels like there's got to be someone who's going to take responsibility for things when they go poorly. And the whole idea of sort of where does the buck stop? You know, are we just going to pass around responsibility for things around in a circle and go nowhere? Or do we have one person who's ultimately the one who both gets to claim sort of victory, I guess, when things go well, but also takes the blame when things go poorly. And I think that's historically been the role of things like presidents and even in a lot of cases, the monarch. So I'm wondering what might happen if you were to just remove that altogether. How it would be instead of having your national, because it's kind of unfair to the office of the president that they're the target for anything that happens, whether or not it's their fault. And instead, like instead of having a national figure to look towards, you'd have your local representative. They'd be kind of your president for your area, I guess, your figurehead to look to whenever things go right or wrong that you'd replace whenever they did a poor job and like reward and like exalt whenever they do a good job. So instead of having the whole nation on one person, you have everyone on their own person in that spirit of decentralization. Because also, like in addition, it's hard to care for an entire nation because that's 330 million people that all have very different, different needs and different geography. Like we have the opioid crisis here and then there's, there's heroin crisis in other areas and like there's the border crisis, some would say, in Texas. So how do you balance all those things is like the one figure so by having each figure for each area they could hopefully better balance the needs of the area in this sort of like localized way that each of the green parties can play to the needs of the specific area they were functioning gotcha so another question i've been asking a lot of guests on here is and i feel like maybe you've answered this so i'm not sure but the question that i that i've been asking is sort of what is the role what should the role of government be? And particularly as it relates to taxes, one of the things that almost defines a lot of the political parties is their policy with respect to how taxes should be collected, should be distributed, that sort of thing. And so I'm curious, in your opinion, what, what should be the role of the government with respect to taxes? The government should leverage the taxes in order to best help their constituents. And that's not like to say that one person should take all the tax money and spend it on their constituency. But like the purpose of the government isn't to speculate on other nations and invest in them. It's to invest here. Say there is a hurricane that or like a typhoon that hits Japan, we should help them out. But our first and foremost issue is here because we have to fix our own bed before we can fix anyone else's bed. So whenever we have though of poverty and homelessness and people going without their medicine and we have mentally ill people unable to be treated, which escalates into things like shootings, which is horrible, but we're not meeting the needs of our people, which is going to eventually spiral out of our control and create a crisis that we can no longer stop. So it's like a lot of preventative maintenance where instead of like being like just reactionary, whenever we see a problem, we fix it. We have to fix that problem before it starts. You mentioned that the general theme of this internal focus and really looking within each state by itself with the emphasis on the welfare of the constituents. But one thing I don't think we've talked about thus far is the role of the Green Party with regards to foreign policy and even the military. I think we touched upon a lot of things such as education and all that as part of the Green New Deal. But correct me if I'm wrong, I don't remember military being a part of that. Correct. Because I think 
currently our military is a little bit overextensive because I believe it was the it was either the Carter or Reagan doctrine of thought for military intervention was basically we intervene to protect our interests. So we have basically militarily intervened in nations that we don't really have any other business being in except for to secure prices or products for our people, which is, in my opinion, wrong in a way. Like we're impeding on another nation's sovereignty because we want something from them cheap, which I don't think that should be the rule of our country. If we're going to have a military, it should be to help like protect the peace in another nation. But it's kind of hard to do whenever we're the ones breaking the peace in some nations. <laughs> so I think we need to take a step back from what we do. We need to focus on nuclear disarmament because if we can take the first step and cut down our nuclear stockpile to the minimum credible threat needed, then it's like one of those things where if we're in negotiations and we both have the same goal, but like it's kind of like the standoff where we both have a gun pointed at each other. If I'm able to put my gun away first, then wouldn't you be more inclined to do so? Because we're no longer have the pressure of like the arms race of always pointing these nuclear weapons at each other. If we were able to scale back to the minimum amount we would need in order to deter any kind of aggression towards us, then we would have a lot more of like a strength to say that, yes, we do believe like we are, we have integrity. We are willing to nuclearly disarm. We are, like turn back the atomic clock so that we don't really have to ever have that thought in our mind of will the world end in nuclear hellfire because that's something that doesn't really occur as much post-cold war but there's still a lot of countries with nukes and there was a lot of talk whenever india and pakistan were going at each other because they're both nuclear countries and that's one of those things that we've had legislation about globally but like whenever we have trying to disarm a nuclear power no one's willing to take the first step because they're afraid to if we're going to portray ourselves as the national, like the global peacekeeper and like the global police, we need to be able to put the first foot forward when we're, it comes to keeping the peace. So I kind of heard two ideas in there, and, and I want to make sure that I'm understanding correctly. You suggested, on one hand, it sounded like focusing more on domestic issues, and it sounded like you were leaning toward that we would specifically not intervene in other countries most of the time. But it also, when you said just now, something along the lines of having sort of a global police or maybe not that, but like having a, a policy of being interventionist. So I'm kind of wondering if you could just clarify for me my misunderstanding here on what you think should be the government's or the maybe our, our country's role in, in international affairs. I think we should focus our tax money back at home and stop with our physical military, like our infantry, our planes, our navy our air force and all that and we should scale it back to a point where we still have like a credible defense force but we don't need to be all over the globe at once like we don't need more aircraft carriers in the entire world in order to patrol our seas but whenever i was talking about like global police like we in the un we have a very important role in the un and we're very influential in a lot of worldwide organizations so we don't necessarily need to be a boot in order to facilitate peace we don't need to bring peace with the barrel of a gun we can do it through diplomacy which i think if we have like foreign policy which i think we should be involved in worldly affairs we should do it through a platform of diplomacy because the united states actually has a very fortunate position of being very difficult to invade so unlike a lot of european nations we don't have to worry about someone invading us and if we do we are the most armed population in the world so like we can speak with diplomacy because we don't have to worry about being attacked so much. So through that, we can help leverage those talks about nuclear disarmament so that we don't have to worry about nuclear war starting. And we can hopefully ease some of the tensions such as between India and Pakistan. Like I'm not super well-versed on global affairs, but people that are more educated on that could hopefully be there to help facilitate a peace or like an agreement over the Kashmir area. So instead of directly intervening like we should have a way of intervening in order to help but not intervening with military force intervening with our words but not with actions because ultimately it's not our place to say but as the global big brother as we were after the fall of the soviet union we owed it to the world to at least try our best in order to help other nations develop and preserve peace in the world cool and if you were to 
see the relationship between the U.S. and other countries as being inevitably necessary because we have such a globally connected system in in trade and entertainment and everything. Do you anticipate that the values would be the same? You know, this neighborly approach. And then I guess on that level, would it be different for countries like Mexico and Canada that are adjacent to us versus ones that are farther away? I believe that we should have open borders with Mexico and Canada because the deal is like nations historically were basically just to keep resources in an area to keep other people from getting them. At this point in time, like we kind of do more harm to ourselves and Mexico and Canada by keeping our borders closed. And that doesn't mean like there's like we just become like Amer- North America, the continent. But basically, it's like one of those things in Europe by open borders. I mean, like we have free travel where I could go from Germany to Austria to Italy to France within the EU, kind of that kind of thing. Mexico could travel. People from Mexico could travel to Texas. And people from Canada could travel to Maine without having to worry about passports and border enforcement unless they have like a warrant for their arrest. But one of the ways that the borders have harmed us is with people having jobs in Mexico is like in uh, Mexico, they have totally different wage laws and stuff like that. So that way they can pay them a lot cheaper to do the same work that could be done north of the border. But if we were to do that, then the whole workforce would be kind of more evened out. So they wouldn't be able to leverage workers in Mexico over workers in the United States because they'd become kind of just workers of America. Then we can naturalize more of our laws and have like better understandings with each other. And I understand that like a lot of this is utopian and that's kind of my, my a lot of my philosophy on this is you shoot for utopian because if you have to compromise with realism, at least you're halfway utopian <laughs> versus being at realism and compromising with realism and staying at realism. So if I propose that we do this and we do maybe a quarter of it, we're better than we are we're off before. And additionally, the whole free travel thing in states we have that. And that can be a lot of good for state economies with like gambling or buying and like different tax laws. So you, states can get extra revenue from travelers and it's good for the economy. We have that similar thing with Mexico and Canada. And we should be friends with them. They're our neighbors. We've historically had pretty good relationships with Mexico and, and not Mexico, Canada. And unfortunately, we don't have the best relationship with Mexico. We've had some struggles with them, but hopefully we could do one of those things where we take the first step in order to better our relationships. I'm glad that you touched on that. And that's such a, there's just something inside of that that I think is different from how I've ever heard anyone else talk about that. When you compared it to borders between states within the country, I really like that as a comparison. And I want to be mindful of our time here. There's another question that occurred to me that I wanted just to get your perspective on. And I I do feel like you've touched on this a bit. And nevertheless, I don't want to make any assumptions about your thoughts here, which is, Most of our other guests have spoken about the free market and the role of capitalism in our country. And particularly with a decentralized government, I'm wondering what, in your opinion, should or would be the role of capitalism and how that would continue to shape our country, our policies, and our culture. I'm one of what Donald Trump would call one of those radical left-wing socialists. And well, socialism does get a pretty bad rap, but the historical idea of socialism through Karl Marx was that not that capitalism was evil and always bad, but that capitalism was part of human progression because before capitalism, we had feudalism, like monarchy and stuff. And before that, we had like the kind of like imperial, like region, not region, um, period with like, we had the Roman empire and we had all those kingdoms there. Yeah. Like imperial rule, basically. Before that, we had like the city states. So I believe that capitalism was just a progress part of like human progression because how do we get from feudalism to socialism? Well, we have the period of capital where we improve our ability to manufacture stuff so instead of a farmer toiling in a field to provide just barely enough for their family and to be taxed by their lord now we could have one person grow enough food for like thousands of people which is mind-blowing if you think of it so we're at a point now where we don't really have to work to survive hypothetically because we have the infrastructure in place or we could have the infrastructure in place in order to maintain what we do with a minimal amount of work. Because there's also like jobs that they exist within the system, but if we were to change it, then they wouldn't as much. Like just how like there's no longer kings and there's no longer barons and stuff. For example, one of the ones I talk about a lot is insurance. Insurance is one of those things where like it works within the system, but outside of the system, it's kind of strange that we pay money to people to pay money for our medical bills for like an upcharge. So I think we've had our period of capitalism. So we're going to move to the period of 
socialism where I don't really know where we go from socialism because I'm not the Karl Marx of socialism because Karl Marx was born during like the beginning of capitalism or during capitalism. So he saw like the good it had for the productive systems, but he saw past it because like, if we just stayed in feudalism, then we would be stuck there. We'd still be serfs. We wouldn't really be having this podcast right now. And capitalism has it's done good things. It's lifted people out of poverty. It's improved our, our manufacturing potential. It's improved the lives of billions and billions of people. It's just about taking the next step and using those productive forces in order to provide the greater good to the plurality opposed to the minority. And how the Green Party talks about doing it and how a lot of people talk about doing it is to basically apply democracy to everything in our life. Instead of just politics, having a democratic workplace, having democratic policies of transportation. So that way, it's like everyone has their own stake in society. So there's no longer the incentive to like say rob a store if that store is partially owned by you. You work in it, you get the products from it. It's like the whole weaving the threads of mutual dependence. So that way you have the incentive to help each other and no longer have any reason to attack each other really because you have more to lose in the gain. So competition like in a free market is actually fairly unnatural if you think about it because the only time we have competition is whenever there's a scarcity of resources. So one gold medal or a little bit of food or only a couple houses on the block. But whenever there's not that scarcity and there's a lot of artificial scarcity in capitalism, for example, we have food that's run out in supermarkets, enough to feed everyone in the entire like continent of the Americas. We have that much run out in a year. And we have our disposable economy where we have new products every year, even though we could put all the features from the last five iPhones on the next one and like save the amount of money people spend on it and just have like an iPhone 4 instead of the iPhone 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. So instead of having like the consumerism where we kind of spread out the innovation and like milk it for all it's worth, we can instead focus more on our innovations and build from them. Or we can reduce the scarcity of items. And it's through cooperation that we can reach our next phase of evolution in humanity. I really, you know, was harping on the the thing that you said about if we all own the store, why rob the store? And I wonder if you would need a socialized economy to make that happen or or if the shared values of mutual ownership and de- mutual dependency that you mentioned earlier would be enough to do that. Is it something that you would have to enforce on a systematic level or is it something that can just be ingrained in our culture? I think it's something that could be ingrained in our culture because like one of the things that's like really strange is people attack the symptoms of crime or like the things, symptoms that cause crime rather than like the root of crime. Like the root of most crime is poverty, but people will attack things like fatherlessness and drug addiction. But a lot of the root causes is poverty. And the, one of the big problems of poverty is lack of options. In a lot of areas like the area where I live, there's a lot of factories shutting down or like manufacturers where people used to work and make good money. They no longer get those jobs. Your options are working at like Wendy's, McDonald's, Taco Bell, and if your prospect for your entire life is to work a minimum wage fast food job, drug addiction kind of looks better than like as a way to supplement that, like as a way of escapism. So that way you don't have to deal with the harsh reality that you live in, like the just the economic despair in your area. And while like some people might not be able, like they might not turn those options, some people will, and some people have. That's a big problem we have here. Whenever you're not able to take care of your needs, like during the depression, when people would drink because they were no longer able to provide for their family, it's a rough thing. And like people will be like, well, you could plan it out better. But the thing is, you can only make it stretch so much. And whenever you make your money stretch, you're also stretching yourself out. So if we can eliminate poverty and have it so that everyone's basic needs can be met, most crime will be eliminated. There won't be theft or burglary anymore because what is there to steal whenever your needs are met? Like you won't need to rob a store in order to buy your groceries because you'll have your groceries. Right. Got it. I want to end with just coming back to the question and make sure we end very clearly on, and actually I meant to ask when we began for someone who belongs to the democratic party, we say they're Democrat to the Republican party. They're a Republican to the green party. What do you say? What do you call that? Do you just call them a green or a green person or a green party? Like what do you have a name for it? I don't know. Some people call us greens. I don't really 
I never really think of the name, actually. I usually just call people by their names. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really strange. I never really thought about it. I'll be like, oh, like, hey, Billy, or hey, Jay. Yeah. Or hey, Kelly. It's not really like, hey there, fellow green. But I guess that kind of goes with the whole, like, neighborly feel of the party. But yeah. I think the term is greens. Okay. As I say, why why are you a Dylan? Doesn't <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make a bunch of sense. As, no, it doesn't work as well. But um, so why are you a green then? Let's say that. If I could put it into one concise reason, I would say because it's the only one of the major four parties fighting for something rather than fighting against something. We're not fighting against the Republicans or fighting against government overreach. Like I guess you can say we're fighting against climate change, but we're like going towards a specific goal. Like we have a very very long and well thought out policy page on the like on Howie Hawkins website. And we're going towards that goal. Instead of attacking our rivals, that's our big deal. Like we're not trying to win the presidency because we're not Joe Biden or because we're not Donald Trump. We're trying to win because we have a plan of what to do. So it's fighting for something we believe in versus fighting some against something we don't like. And that's one of the, my philosophies to voting and why I'm voting for the Green Party. I'm voting for something that I believe in versus voting against something I don't like. You seem to be very driven by your values. Yeah, some people say I'm ideologically pure, but I don't know. I think that's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> it's like one of those things where people say that the left's a hive mind. It's like I'm sure you might have heard somewhere that like everyone on the left wing's a hive mind. There's an old saying that goes, if you have two leftists, you have an organization. If you have three leftists, you have two organizations because <laughs> like people that aren't leftists, they don't really know that there's a whole bunch of fighting that we do. So there's a lot that goes behind the scenes. And a lot of people in the Green Party, they don't have the same political philosophy I do. Like some people, they believe that we need to have a more unitary government. Some people believe that we need to have no government. And like it's just the like municipal level, and that's all. There's no confederation or anything like the thing I was talking about. Sure. But we all have like the kind of deal where we're just like, well, we're close enough to each other and different enough from these people that we can work together towards our the things we agree on and we can figure the rest out later. Cool. I want to leave with, if you have any recommendations for resources, books, articles, movies, YouTube channels, I don't know, whatever, if there's a resource you'd like to recommend for our listeners that they might go learn more about anything that you've, you find particularly interesting or that's important to you for the Green Party or that just might be helpful for people who are wanting to know more about what it is that goes on with the Green Party? Well, if you want to learn about the Green Party, I'm sure, in my opinion, one of the best resources to just immerse yourself is Howie Hawkins' website and his platform. He also has a book out called The Case for an Independent Left Party. And then if you are interested, go on Facebook, go on Twitter, find your local Green Party, join them. I'm sure they need you. <laughs> We need as many people as we can get. And for reading about other things, one of my influences for like reading is Murray Bookchin, who, interestingly enough, used to know Howie Hawkins before he passed on. He's kind of opposed to Bernie Sanders. It was, it's an interesting story. Can you say that name one more time? Murray Bookchin. He was an American author who wrote about a system he called municipal libertarianism, where it's basically kind of like an anarchist system, but at the municipal level. So instead of having like a commune, you have like your townships that work together in a confederation. It's some interesting stuff. And that's where I kind of get my structural ideas from. But there's a lot out there. I can't recommend everything I like to everyone because we all have different ideas. But yeah, that's kind of the gist. You could branch off from there. Awesome. Well, again, I want to thank you so much for your time, for coming on to speak with us today and sharing your thoughts and ideas. It's really been a pleasure. I really appreciate having been able to have this cohesive structure to the conversation and, and someone like yourself to guide it. A lot of things in here are things I'd never heard before. So it's really cool for me, especially I feel like I learned something new. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I've never done anything like this and it was really fun. Awesome. I actually really enjoyed it. I was kind of afraid at first. <laughs> that's, that's what everyone says. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I'll go ahead and say thank you and I will talk to you later. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Okay, so that'll wrap up our, our interview with Dylan. And again, I want to say thank you for his time and for joining us on this on this episode. And man, did I learn a lot? Oh, so much. I, I came away with uh, just as much information uh, to only lead me in several more directions. Yeah, I mean, 
I will share that after every single one of these interviews, I had the question, am I a Republican? Am I a Democrat? Am I libertarian? And now I'm like, am I a Green Party? There's something in all of them that I find that I can latch onto in some way or another. Absolutely, which is unfortunately the antithesis of what we're taught too often in mainstream media. And I think is what our goal was, was to find those common grounds. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I thought it was very revealing and and very informative to be able to sit down and just have that conversation with people. So, man, I, I think I'm really excited we did this. And I almost wish that we had some reason to do more of it. I, I kind of had the idea of us interviewing an anarchist <laughs> next, just to, just to hear him. What's the fifth most popular uh, political party? <laughs> Great question. I did look it up, but I forgot. Remains to be seen. <laughs> the, the nonpartisan party, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. I mean, that was a lot of fun. I really got a lot out of it. And uh, I think, you know, this is going to be long. And again, this is sort of a bonus episode, so I don't want to take up too much of everyone's time. But there's a few things I wanted to do, sort of some post-mortem, if you will, some perspectives on what we've been through in this series of episodes. And one of the things that I think is the most illuminating, maybe not the most, but one that stood out to me as being fascinating for the fact that it occurred every single time was Every guest that we invited to be on here almost said no. They told us that they were hesitant to do it, and they all requested that we hide their identity in some way. They said, I don't want to talk about my full name. I don't want to mention where I'm from, and I really don't want to mention what I do for work. And the reason was they were afraid of the repercussions that they might face from their community or their job just for having the political orientation and the views that they do. And I kind of just felt that that was sad, you know, especially when you hear what values they have, education, climate, you know, money, raising people out of poverty. These are these substantial things that you would think blend across or transcend political ideology. And we're embarrassed about them. Yeah, we're scared to face the wrath of those people who might have our jobs at stake or might treat us differently because we're brave enough to stand up and say, you know what? I think that we should maybe be more thoughtful about, you know, some process of government that seems to be happening in a way that nobody's happy with. And another thing too is how much overlap there was among the four of them. I believe everybody mentioned ranked choice voting too, hot hot item of this year. Yeah. Good call. Everybody spoke in some capacity about climate change and social justice, particularly with respect to like freedom, I think is maybe the way to to look at that. Absolutely. And, you know, I think even on this one, um, the phrase that caught me the most was the, the idea of green network, you know, having that neighborly dynamic between uh, different states, different neighboring countries and, and whatever that looks like. Yeah. Immediately thinking of lawns that are all connected together, to green. <laughs> <laughs> like a communal garden, maybe. One thing I was going to add, though, as you know, as we close out the, the series was I would encourage listeners to make sure that you try to invest the time in listening to all four of them. And I would encourage people to start with the one that they believe they disagree with the most. I think that would be an exciting way to kick off the series. It, it doesn't go in any particular order for any particular reason other than how it was recorded. But I think you could gain a different perspective by going in a particular order. Yeah, great point. I also agree that I think if you're going to listen to one, you'll benefit from hearing them all. And even if you disagree with it, and you might mm -hmm. still disagree with it after you're done, you know, I think that there were certainly some things that were said that I disagreed with. And this is a good opportunity, actually, to remind everyone that nothing that was said in this or any of our other interviews are we endorsing in any way. We just wanted to create the platform for them to be able to share their ideas. And we may not have disagreed with them explicitly in the in interview. This is for all of the interviews that we did. But we wanted to nevertheless have people have the opportunity to just to just share that. So that's something that even though I think it's understood to make sure is is clearly said. And again, you know, nevertheless, like I said, there were there were lots of things that I, I did like and agree with what they had to say. And and I tried to also be cautious on how much I endorsed some of the ideas that I heard as well, even if I did agree. Absolutely. And, you know, if it's a lesson learned that we can generalize or the listeners can generalize to other aspects of their life, whether it's uh, with family or professionally in any sort of way of listening to other voices, I, I think it could have a very positive impact. Absolutely. So let this maybe serve as a way to help start that conversation with somebody that you know you disagree with politically, or maybe even just learn about something you didn't already know. So I'll, I'll try and, and close this out here so we don't take up too much of anyone's time. I guess what I wanted to say is I felt like one of our goals in this series was to expose the humanity of people 
who belong to parties who disagree so profoundly with one another that we are in a time in our country where there is actual violence and the possibility of much more violence. And yet when we look at each person as an individual, we see them as people, as humans that maybe have opinions that differ from ours, but are nevertheless something that we can respect who they are and what they believe. And who want the same thing more often than none. Yeah, absolutely. So that's sort of, I think, sort of where I would like to close it. Do you have any other any closing ideas here? No, I'm, I'm just excited for everyone to encounter what we've been privileged to listen to. All right, perfect. Well, my final recommendation, if you will, for this one is go vote. Yes, absolutely. You know, in whatever capacity is safe for you, mm-hmm. I think some people prefer to vote in person, vote early, vote by mail, whatever works for you. Just make sure you get out there and vote. It is critically important that we all participate in this democratic process Because if you don't, (laughs) then you are giving your vote to the people who do go vote, and you may not trust them with that choice. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) It's never been phrased like that, but that's true. And and even beyond that, you know, this is one of the most important features of our country is is the, the fact that we all participate in electing democratically people to run the country. And for all the criticisms that there might be of the way that the system is currently set up, It is the one we've got, and the only way we're going to change it is by voting. So get out there and vote. Well said. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for recording with me today, Alan. Thanks again to Dylan for his time. Thank you very much for listening and making it through this episode. I hope that you have checked out all of them, or at least some of them, and definitely check out some of our other episodes. If you are a green person, a green, I guess, (laughs) and would like to uh, share your thoughts, maybe you agree or disagree with what Dylan had to say, feel free to reach out to us on social media or email us. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to hear in the future, if you're excited about Halloween like we are, we look forward to hearing all of the mail that you might deign to send us. So please do not hesitate. We love hearing from people no matter what it is. And if you uh, would like to support the show, you of course can join us on Patreon, leave us a rating and or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and that also can help us out so again i think that is all i have unless you have any other closing thoughts alan that's about it all right this is abraham this is alan we are out take care you've been listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.